There's a solitary, humble, wooden structure on a windswept hill in rural New England. To open the door is to engage our minds, our hearts, and our imaginations. In this place, preachers and professors, past and present, come alive as they walk the aisle, ascend the pulpit stairs, and teach. From theology, from history, and from the Word of God, welcome to the Saybrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries. Today, we present the third and final portion of Ben Keller's message, entitled, The Word Made Flesh. It is part of an Advent series, studying the Christology statement published by Ligonier Ministries. It was preached at Refuge Church, in Linwood, Washington, on December 13, 2020. Article 17 says this, We affirm that Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge all people, and will finally vanquish all his enemies, destroy death, and usher in the new heaven and the new earth, in which he will reign in righteousness. You see what I mean about uh, theological and doxological? That's, that's a, a sentence you could absolutely sing. We deny that the final return of Jesus Christ took place in AD 70, and that his coming and its attendant events are to be viewed as symbolic. So Article 17 is about the final judgment. The final judgment. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 25 and listen to our Lord in verses 31 through 46. This is Jesus, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to see me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, 
As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Christians tend to minimize the events of 70 A.D. The destruction of Jerusalem was a very important, prophetic, prophetically significant event. And Pastor James has touched on that. But the denial of this article is referring to a misunderstanding. A misunderstanding that, that took root as a heresy. And namely, that heresy is that Christ already returned in fullness and in judgment in 70 A.D., There absolutely was a judgment at 70 A.D., but Christ's second advent is in front of us, not behind us. The affirmation of Article 17 seeks to remind us that there will be a great demarcation when the day of the Lord, the end of the age, is upon us. And you saw this in Jesus' own words. A separation of wheat and chaff a separation of sheep and goats, a separation of those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and those who are not. You know, in the Declaration of uh, Independence that our forefathers composed, um, and, uh, well, Thomas Jefferson wrote most of it, but he had a little editing help. But it was group authorship, and certainly every, all of our forefathers that signed on the dotted line, including the huge uh, signature of John Hancock for the ailing eyes of King George to see. Um, They cited 27 grievances against King George. 27 ways in which they said King George is uh, directly or indirectly acting unjustly toward the American colonies. But what Article 17 here reminds us is that both the judgment and the righteous reign of our King Jesus is and forever will be beyond the ability of any of us to critique, complain, gainsay. We certainly won't have any grievance. We will be on bended knee, acknowledging his royal rights, and praising him as the first begotten of the dead, as the prince of the kings of the earth, as the alpha and omega, as the first and the last, as the son of God, as the son of man, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the root of David, as the lamb who was slain, as the bright and morning star, as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Amen? Lastly, Article 18. We affirm that those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom, but those who do not believe in him will suffer eternal conscious punishment in hell. We deny that every person will be saved. We deny that those who die without faith in Jesus Christ will be annihilated. 
So Article 18 is about the scope of salvation, the scope of salvation for your notes. And we will be in Matthew, for our final verses, Matthew 13 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Matthew 13, verses 40 through 43. Matthew 13, 40 through 43. And again, uh, this is the end of the parable of the weeds. Verses 40 through 43. What Jesus is saying here, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And lastly, 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 10. This is Paul speaking to the church at Thessalonica. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Well, if you have the courage to admit that you watched any Christian television back in the 80s or 90s, I did, you might be familiar with Carlton Pearson. So following in the footsteps of his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Pearson became a Pentecostal preacher, and his ministerial success landed him semi-regular appearances on the Trinity Broadcasting Network back in the day. But in the early 2000s, Pearson had a crisis of faith, which led him to jettison the historic, orthodox, biblical teaching on the reality of hell. Scripture teaches that hell is a real destination for a vast number of souls who reject Christ. Scripture teaches that the suffering endured in hell is never-ending. And Pearson contemplated what that meant for his family, for his friends, even strangers who are outside the faith, and he decided that doctrine just could not be true. Now, when Americans think about preaching on hell, they sometimes conjure up images of southern sawdust trail preachers, right? Bible thumpers, the booming voice that can fill the revival tent, the full vibrato as they're preaching, 
the wild gesticulations and spittle flying out of the mouth as they're doing their level best. Billy Sunday, the famous American evangelist of the 1920s, was not the least bit embarrassed about it. He even published a sort of how-to book complete with photos of himself in various poses of evangelical uh, athleticism (laughs) to show lesser preachers this is how you close the deal when you're preaching. You have to get, he was a, uh, actually a successful base, almost, almost was a pro baseball player, very athletic, and he brought that athleticism to his preaching. So while, while many of these kinds of preachers were earnest in their intentions, we also have to realize something kind of sobering here, that in the history of that preaching, it's, it's littered with all too many men that were themselves hypocrites, liars, gluttons, drunkards, adulterers, in danger of the very hell that they were preaching about. Isn't it interesting, then, that God used mild-mannered, quiet-voiced, non-emotive, manuscript-reading, bespectacled Jonathan Edwards as perhaps one of the most faithful and successful preachers on hell. The Holy Spirit descended on New England during what we call the Great Awakening. And hundreds of colonists who had been going to church because that's what we do on Sunday, and that's the cultural expectation, were powerfully converted and saved during that time. They gained a real experiential trust and knowledge in Christ. As Edwards, anointed by the Holy Spirit with one of the best minds in American Christendom ever, preached to them about their perilous condition, that they were on the edge of a precipice. And over the edge of that precipice, over which they are dangling, is damnation. In the American church, we have an unbiblical presumption Uh, We have several, but one of them goes like this. We assume that nearly everybody who darkens the door of a church voluntarily is saved. Why do I say it's unbiblical? Because Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus said, the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Edwards didn't share our unbiblical presumptions. He reserved judgment on the true faith of his congregants until and unless he saw fruit from them that warranted it. He scrupulously avoided rose-colored assumptions about the spiritual health of his flock, but he beat the drum with them week in And week out, as he exposited scripture, Jesus Christ saves. Jesus Christ saves. And he made sure everyone in the sound of his, his voice understood that without faith in Christ and truly claiming and owning him as your Lord and your Savior, they were heading towards an unimaginably horrible future. Carlton Pearson now teaches that no one ends up in hell. In fact, 
says Pearson, there is no such thing as hell. Because Pearson's teaching is clearly refuted by the whole canon of Scripture, we shouldn't be surprised that he has also jettisoned virtually every other belief he had that is recognizably Christian. And he now basically espouses a sort of Eastern mysticism and New Age Gnosticism. That's the fruit of his sinful decision allowing how a doctrine made him feel to trump whether that doctrine is, in fact, true. A few concluding thoughts for us. 500 years ago, almost to the day, December 2, 1520, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, ascended the pulpit of the Wittenberg Church to deliver the first sermon of that year's Advent season. This was three years after he had nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church, and much had transpired since then. Unlike my message this morning that is delivered in the relative peace and prosperity of Linwood, Washington, United States of America in 2020, Luther preached his Advent sermon about the incarnation of Christ with the threat of excommunication or even martyrdom looming over his head in the form of an enraged Pope Leo who had sent him a papal bull, which was a communication to say, you will recant or else. That's what he was laboring under as he delivered this Advent message. So I want to share just a short snippet of his message. Remember, all this is going on in the background as he gets behind that pulpit. Luther says, I have often said that there are two kinds of faith. First, a faith in which you indeed believe that Christ is such a man as he is described and proclaimed in all the Gospels, but do not believe that he is such a man for you and are in doubt whether you have any part in him and think, yes, he is such a man to others, to Peter, Paul, and the blessed saints, but who knows whether he is such to me and that I may expect the same from him and may confide in it as these saints did. Behold, Luther says, This faith is nothing. It does not receive Christ, nor enjoy him. Neither can it feel any love and affection for him or from him. It is a faith about Christ and not in Christ. A faith which the devils also have as well as evil men. There's a second kind of faith. And it is the only faith that can be called Christian faith, which believes without wavering that Christ is the Savior not only to Peter and to the saints, but also to you. Your salvation does not depend on the fact that you believe Christ to be a Savior of the godly, but that he is a Savior to you and has become your own. Just as real as the fact that I'm standing here in front of you right this morning 
is the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth rose on the third day. It is a fact, and it is a glorious fact. I implore you not to shut that YouTube off or to leave this room today unless you are sure of where you stand with Jesus Christ. I implore you today to consider that. As J.I. Packer said, the Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will ever hear. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see in the truth we have learned about you in Scripture and in the statements that we've studied this morning, the depth of your mercy, the triumphant scope of your power. Lord, I'm humbled this morning as I consider the fact that you are a saving God. You have the power to save to the uttermost. And this time of year, along with Easter, we consider the amazing humility experienced and undergone by our Lord Jesus to take on the person of a human being in addition to being the eternal Son of God, a true mystery, the God-man, who experienced life as we experience it so that he could save us. Thank you that it wasn't just some interesting vacation that you sent your son on, a sightseeing tour of humanity. It was a saving mission. Thank you, Lord, that in ages to come, from all those who've passed before, like my great-grandfather and the many who those of us in this room know and love who have passed on singing your praises today. And then when they're joined to their resurrection body in the new heavens and new earth, forever and ever and ever and ever, our praise to you will be exhaustless. So thank you this morning. Reach in tenderly. Speak to your people. Help us this morning as we continue in worship. And we'll give you the praise. And all God's people said, Amen. 
Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit saybrookministries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.